0: Listening to On the Pulse, a podcast from the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into the experiences of frontline providers and researchers. We explore their insights and invaluable stories of how healthcare works in today's world. On today's episode, I am excited to welcome two guests who are here to help us understand the complexities of the journey back to normalcy as we continue to get closer to the end of the COVID 19 pandemic. Our first guest is Dr. Debbie Gross, the Leonard and Helen Stallman and Dell Professor in Psychiatric and Mental Health Nursing. Dr. Gross is a child psychiatric nurse and a developer of the Innovative Chicago Parent Program, which helps promote positive parent-child relationships and prevent behavioral problems in children. Also joining us is Dr. Valerie Carter, an Associate Professor at the School of Nursing who specializes in gerontology, Aging, Dementia, and Palliative Care. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. As we know, widespread vaccination is occurring across the United States in particular, and many of us are returning to work or school full-time after being home for nearly a year and a half. And while this return to some normalcy is exciting on one hand, as parents and caregivers, we may also have some concerns for children and aging parents. So for this conversation, we wanted to bring together some different perspectives to what this will look like for children and parents, as well as those who are serving as caregivers of older adults. So Dr. Gross, let's start with you. And maybe you can help lay the foundation for us as we jump into this conversation. Can you start by helping us understand how did the COVID-19
1: pandemic impact kids and in particular their mental health? So this is a huge question. Thank you so much for asking it. Uh, I think this is on everybody's mind because it's so huge. I'm just going to focus on the things that I think are probably the biggest issues affecting children um, in the near future. So first Uh, schools were closed and then transitioned to virtual learning, which, as we learned, had a huge impact on children's learning and their mental health. With the loss of in-person education came a lot of other losses, including the loss of routines, loss of social connections, outdoor activities, and access to the many resources that schools provide for kids, such as regular meals, health care, mental health care. Also, some Children may have had close family members who became seriously ill from or were lost to COVID. So we have a number of children who may be grieving from these losses. And finally, the other big issue, I think, is the isolation that was brought on by COVID. It was particularly hard on children who were living in families dealing with domestic violence, uh, mental health or substance use problems. Um, Because being at home all day heightened their exposures to these adversities. So I think these are probably the three biggest things that um, we have to be aware of are affecting children's mental health.
0: Thank you for that reminder. And
1: certainly loss has been one of the themes that is frequently spoken
0: about. And if I could go further to, to think about, well, after a year of living under COVID quarantine, and a whole new set of rules and way of living. Many schools are now planning to return to full-time in person, and this is gonna be another significant change. What might this look like for some kids and what kind of feelings might these kids be having as they plan to go back um, into the classroom?
1: Well, great question. Um, We anticipate first and foremost that there's gonna be a lot of anxiety. Um, not just among children, but also among teachers, staff, and parents. You know, we have to be very concerned about the child's mental health. We have to be uh, also thinking about how the child's mental health is embedded in this larger system of adults who also are going through their own anxieties. I I completely agree with that. It takes a village
0: for good outcomes, and it also means that we should think of our village when there are bad outcomes. But can I hone in a little bit on parents? How can parents specifically help? these children?
1: Ah, okay, another good question. So first, children manifest anxiety in very different ways. And I think we have to really be aware of that based on their developmental age and their personalities. So young children may regress, for example, they might start wetting the bed, even though they've been fully toilet trained, or, um, or they may refuse to do things that they would typically have done before, or more tantrums um across all ages i think uh you know we might see we're going to see more sleep problems more difficulty concentrating um, more defiance or pushing back on simple expectations um Some children who are anxious or stressed, they may look anxious or stressed, they may look sad, but a lot of kids will instead look angry and defiant when they are in fact quite scared. So we have to be careful to not misinterpret what children are feeling, not misinterpret their cues. So the first thing is just really paying attention to those cues and not being aware that anxiety and stress is gonna manifest itself in many different ways. Um, Second, I think we should be asking children every day how they are feeling if you're, if you're a parent, you know, so for for young children, you know, it's really great to have a book with pictures of different kinds of feelings that, that children can point to or can help give the words to how they're feeling. Um, so really checking in with kids every day and for older children also check in every day with them, but make sure that when you ask how they're feeling that you're they're also really listening and you're not just waiting to give them advice. If you're not sure how to respond to their feelings, ask them, you know, ask them, would you like me to just listen and understand? Or are you also looking for some guidance? Uh, you know, ask that question. Usually kids just want a, a safe place to be heard, uh, to feel valued and feel some control over their world. Um, even if they seem to be pushing you away, they're not. I mean, just really focus in on, being there um, and not worrying about so much about you know am i am i giving the right advice just be a good listener and be there for them Um, as much as possible create household routines Uh, for example have a regular bedtime routine and um, or uh, regular bedtimes uh, regular meal times uh, regular work uh, homework routines Um, routines really can reduce stress for everyone Um, and finally pay attention to and limit how much news kids are being exposed to on television and social media, because those media outlets really amp up the fear volume. And so you really want to protect kids from being exposed to a lot of that. So I think those are the main things that parents can do um, with kids in the, in the near future.
0: Those are some excellent suggestions and wonderful nuggets that we should all be mindful of, but as, as they transition to schools What are some of the things that schools should be considering around how to help these kids ease back into the transition to get back into the classroom?
1: Well, first and foremost, the most important thing schools can do is to make the physical environment safe based on CDC guidelines for schools. If parents and students feel that the school is attentive to keeping their children healthy and safe, they're going to relax a bit more. I think it's also really important for schools to attend to the mental health needs of their teachers and their staff because their anxiety will definitely affect the children and the overall school climate. So schools really have a responsibility for thinking again about how not just the children, but also how the adults are doing. And I think we need to provide more mental health and and healthcare services for children in the schools. Um, One of the things we really learned from the school closures is how much we count on schools for providing health-related support services for children. Um, th- there are not nearly enough school-based nurses and mental health providers in schools to support children, and the pandemic really revealed how just how important these providers are, particularly in low-resource communities. I would concur that um, many of these
0: lessons have been taught in the pandemic, and sadly, it took a pandemic to teach us some of these lessons about yeah. what we need. Mm-hmm. So let, let, let's let think a little bit towards the future. How do you think living through COVID-19 and this
1: pandemic is going to impact kids in the future? Ah, This is a great question. And really, the only way we're going to know is to study it. And I hope we do. Um, I think the impact will vary enormously by community, since we know that some communities have been affected much more adversely than others. And a lot depends on how we manage this process of reopening. So I think that we can anticipate that, for example, certain communities, we have to make sure that there's more services um, being directed. In natural settings where families will be, um, not just focusing just in the mental health clinics, because a lot of families won't pursue or can't get to a mental health clinic, but in schools and in churches and in community centers, making making sure that the resources that we are providing are accessible to um, to families in in, in those communities. Um, But a lot of it also depends on how we manage this process of reopening. Um, But I'm optimistic. I really, I think that people understand this is going to be difficult. And um, so I'm optimistic. I think you share the sentiments
0: of many that as things get better, we can continue to be more optimistic and to see what the future holds for these kids. Thank you so much, Dr. Gross. That was very insightful. Thank you. And Dr. Carter, if we could continue this conversation. So many of the insights that Dr. Gross provided are probably paralleled in the older older adult population as well. But maybe you can start by first, again, just laying the foundation for how the pandemic impacted older adults as well as their caregivers. Sure. Um, You know,
2: older adults um, are in such a, a wide, diverse spectrum of individuals. So, um, you know, many older adults are, are still working and have been working uh, throughout the pandemic and learning to work more remotely at home. Um, many older adults were very hard hit um, by the COVID 19 uh, pandemic um, before we had the vaccine, especially those frail older adults who live in uh, long term care, um, nursing homes, and assisted living facilities. Um, you know, who had to close their doors uh, to keep the older adults and the staff that take care of them in those facilities safe. Um, you know, they couldn't allow family members and friends to to visit. And that was very isolating for older adults. And, you know, I hear from many of the patients that I take care of with cognitive impairment and dementia who have a loved one in a nursing home and um, even those who have been isolated at home, um, how they're Um, function, overall function and, you know, how they're, how they're managing has declined, uh, due to the isolation. So that, that, that's really been difficult. Many older adults are caregivers, not only for their spouses, partners, but also for their, um, grandchildren. And, um, you know, that's created some stress in that, you know, younger families, um, may be relying on an older adult to, provide, you know, primary care for um, that child, and they couldn't do that through the pandemic because of risk to the older person um, being in close contact um, with the grandchildren. So, you know, I really think the older adult population has suffered quite a lot. We all have, but they especially and their families have suffered a great deal
0: during this pandemic. Thank you. That is a wonderful reminder about how much, particular this group, has suffered. And as we start to go back into the workplace, what can people start doing to help prepare themselves and their loved ones for this transition back to work?
2: I I think the most important thing is for families um, and communities to sit down together and talk about um, adjusting to this new normal of heading back to school and work. And the impact that will have, you know, individually on each family, because each family is so unique. Um, You know, so that the older adult may be heading back to work in the office, or, um, you know, their child may also be trying to balance uh, working remotely and maybe some in-office time. Um, So I think just, you know, recognizing that it's likely going to cause new stressors um, with the transition. Um, and, you know, planning for that, anticipating it and, and, you know, having good, open communication between the generations, um, you know, so that you can talk it through what will make the most sense and work best um, for you
0: and for your family. That is that is a wonderful reminder. And um, caregiving can often be a difficult job. What resources are there out there for families who are struggling with the weight of caregiving, um, especially if they're taking care of an older adult?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, One one of the best resources, I think, for every family that has an older adult is to contact their Area Agency on Aging. Every county in the United States has one. Um, Here we are in Maryland. They're called the Department of Aging. When I was in Philadelphia, it was the Area Agency on Aging. So, you know, just... um, encouraging people to go online if they're not aware of that, to find their area agency on aging uh, for services um, and assistance and support. That would be helpful. I think that's where I'd recommend people go initially. And then I would encourage people to think about, you know, what are your supports, Um, your people supports, your community supports, your faith-based supports, um, that you've utilized in the past, and, and maybe during the pandemic you haven't been able to utilize them in the same way. Um, but but to see how you might be able to do that once again, <clears throat> and also I think so important, you know, just don't feel bad about you know that sense of vulnerability or that you need support maybe in a new way that you perhaps hadn't uh, needed um, before the pandemic or before you know, this new
0: transition back to a near normal life. Thank you so much for sharing those resources. Um, What do you think about telehealth and the flexibility that this offers for families?
2: Hmm. Um, I absolutely love it. I've been using it myself over the pandemic with my patients and families. And, you know, in the beginning, I had a lot of concerns about losing that touch, um, that you know, personal face-to-face interaction with my patients and families. And what I found is that many of them actually prefer it once we've already established a relationship um, because it allows so much flexibility. And um, in my work with older adults who um, often do rely on um, family members, friends, or caregivers <clears throat> who may not live close by but are very involved in caregiving, um, so as a long distance caregiver being able to um you know phone in or get into the video conference for a telehealth medicine visit um is really really helpful for them to to learn more about the older adult's health and what's going on with them um it's it's very supportive i think to the older adult to you know to have that that help from um their children and then as a provider as a nurse practitioner it's also very helpful for me to to meet with a family and not just, you know, the patient and maybe one caregiver. So just opening it up to the larger family structure has really been helpful through telemedicine. And um, yeah, I really hope it I hope it continues beyond the pandemic to be able to allow people that choice and flexibility um, both from the patient's point of view as well as the healthcare provider's uh, point of view, what,
0: what would work best for that patient. It's It's thank you. It's certainly been an additional resource, and as you mentioned, the flexibility that it offers for individual. So then are you saying that telehealth should be considered more in the future, as we know so many persons who are taking on this dual role?
2: Um, absolutely. And you know there's two bills in the in, in Congress right now. I was um, <clears throat> on a virtual Hill day actually yesterday with my members of Congress, um, urging them to support the Telehealth Modernization Act and the Connect for Health Act, um, two bills in uh, the Senate and the House um, uh, that hopefully will extend the telehealth um, benefit for our patients and families beyond
0: the pandemic. Well, thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating, filled with resources, hope and optimism and as we transition back to school and work um it will look different but um again we would just want to reiterate the the feeling of optimism as we look forward thank you so much to both of you for joining our show today i hope many will find it helpful as we start to return back to school and work thank you thank you too And thank you everyone for listening to this episode of On The Pulse. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you know and subscribe through Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Be sure to also check out our On The Pulse blog and Facebook Live series. You can learn more about the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing at nursing.jhu.edu. Thanks again for listening.